Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. So this is somewhat similar to some of the stuff we talked about in the end of the learning class uh, today. Because we're talking about learning, but we're going to talk about more of an approach that's taken from like an evolutionary angle. So I'll talk about some stuff that's uh, the sort of traditional approach, and then the one that's used quite a bit more now. Um, you got to realize that for the longest time, psychologists and pathologists, that's sort of biologists that study animal behavior, they're both studying animals. Uh, you know, going back literally to, geez, some of the first work in psychology was done by animal learning people, Thorndike, and puzzle boxes, all that stuff that a lot of you guys should know about. Uh, and then the same thing was happening in animal behavior, where people have been studying animals in the wild and in more naturalistic kind of habitats forever. I mean, for a very long time. Ever since there have been biologists, there have been people studying animal behavior. So both of these uh, approaches were out there. Both of these approaches were out there, but it was like they're both studying the same subject matter, but a lot of times the people that were studying uh, animal learning were studying in a lab and only looking at acquired behavior. And the people in the, the biologists, the, the ethologists, they were studying animal behavior, but typically looking at it, looking at it in the wild or a naturalistic or semi-naturalistic environment. And finally, the thing they were looking at, they typically were looking at, was they didn't consider it learning. And it turned out that the ethologists thought the psychologists were doing it wrong, and the psychologists thought the ethologists were doing it wrong. Uh, and to a point, both of them were doing it wrong, I think. Um, but it, it comes down to, uh, eventually, um, both groups sort of figuring stuff out. Hopefully we'll be getting to that. So we have to figure out what learning is first. Um, and this is something that a lot of you have seen uh, slides like this before, which is learning. Um, so event time one influences behavior at time two is probably the best definition out there. Um, it's pretty good. Uh, I think that's Bob Rascola's definition. Uh, and if you're going to talk about learning theory, he's the guy. So that's you know it's a, it's a reasonable definition. Uh, there's obviously cases where that's not perfect. Uh, you know, if I break your legs and then you can't walk. You haven't, that's not a learning phenomenon. You may have learned that I, I'm a bad guy. But you have, it's not like you haven't learned you, you learn not to walk, you just you can't because you, I hit you in the leg with a lead pipe. <laughs> yeah. Like a figure skater, that figure that? Tony Hardy? Nancy Perry? No, before the, I think it was the 1998 Olympics. It was an American figure skater. Nancy Kerrigan, and then Tonya Harding was another American figure skater. So what happened was uh, Harding got to uh, to break the legs of the other figure skater, which is pretty awesome. You wouldn't think of figure skaters being that hardcore, but apparently they are. 
I think the hard part of it then when you throw in psychotic, <laughs> it doesn't help, right? Um, so that's a decent definition. We can think about classical and awkward conditioning then. So and you should all know what this is, even if you didn't take learning with me just from intro, but quickly, a classical conditioning is a conditioned stimulus, like, oh, I don't know, let's say uh, a buzzer. And originally a buzzer doesn't elicit anything, any behavior at all. But if you pair the buzzer with food, eventually the buzzer elicits salivation, right? That's Pavlov, original Pavlov experiments, and it's a buzzer, not a bell. Um, a lot of our learnings like that, I mean, you have learning like that in your life right now. Literally, if you thought of food, you would salivate, right? Uh, operant conditioning. Uh, is when there's a behavior and then it has a consequence and that consequence makes the behavior more or less likely. So the idea of reinforcement there. Right? So I give, you know, you do something, you do whatever the right thing is, and I give you a piece of food, you're more likely to do that. You being a rat, you being a nematode, you being a human. These two kinds of learning, this kind of learning classical mission has showed up Literally, in every species that's ever been tested, every animal species that's ever been tested shows a classical condition. Both vertebrates and invertebrates, everything. And opera conditioning is pretty close to this problem. Now, this, of course, made the psychologists think that they really unlocked the key thing, and they had. There's no, no one's going to deny that. That if, if we can find something that is ubiquitous, that happens everywhere, it's got to be important, and it clearly is. I mean, classical conditioning and operant conditioning are very important phenomena in behavior. The argument then from the ethologist was, yeah, fine, but you're not looking at individual species, members of species, you're not looking at species differences, and you're not looking at anything in the wild, you're not looking at anything naturalistic, you've got these animals in Skinner boxes, etc. What's a, a, you saw, what are you saying? You, you saw, what are you saying? What? Huh? What? What, 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 what am I saying about what? What group of people are Well, the ethologists, that's sort of, ethologists are people, uh, biologists study animal behavior. Oh. And they basically said this was all artificial. Um, they also really rejected the idea of equal potentiality, the idea that, and this is an idea from behaviorism, the idea that any behavior in any species can be made more or less likely through reinforcement. Right? This is the idea that I can train, you give me a Skinner box and someone who's good at shaping, and I can get a pigeon to do anything a person can do. Right? B.F. Skinner, you know, thought, he literally said that human language was learned simply through reinforcement. We know that's not true today. In fact, that was where he almost stepped too far. And that's one of the big things that I think led... Uh, to the cognitive revolution, right? The idea that we should look at uh, internal representations of things and not just look at sort of learning phenomena. The ethologist rejected this, saying every species is different, and this idea is completely ridiculous. And in fact, it's a bit of both, right? I mean, there are phenomena that are very general. 
I just said that this happened. Plasma conditioning literally is ha happens in every species that's ever been tested, including the nematode, which has 302 neurons. We know the genome. We know every neural circuit. Right? We know everything there is to know about nematodes. And they show it. It's the simplest animal with the nervous system. 302 neurons. That's not very many. It also shows up in us, possible condition. On the other hand, the ethologists were correct when they said that the idea of equal potentiality is ridiculous. Right? It's not that every animal is basically the same thing, they're just in a different package, and that their learning abilities are exactly the same. That's ridiculous. So, again, the two extreme positions, as is almost always the case, are wrong, and there's a bit of truth to both of them. One of the things that people started wondering about the psychologists was which animal is smarter than which animal. In other words, which animal, if you wanted to rank order them, which ones had the best learning ability? And in fact, E.L. Thorndike, the guy that started studying animal learning really, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, with the puzzle boxes. You know about Thorndike and his puzzle boxes? So what Thorndike did is he had these cats, and he put them in a box. That's already fun. And there's all kinds of little things that the cat can manipulate. There's a little uh, lever it can press. There's a, a little treadle, like a, uh, a treadle, you know, like a, a ramp kind of thing with a spring-loaded deal on it. It can press. There's a little chain it can back. And the, the cat is locked in there. And once the cat does the right thing, it opens the box and it gets out and gets some food and you take it and you put it back in. Now, Thorndike eventually abandoned studying other animals, but his idea for his PhD thesis was, I'm going to find, I'm going to rank order of the animals in smartness. Who can learn what? Uh, he happily went away from that because that's a stupid idea. But he did discover basically operative conditioning. So good on him. So people have wondered that for years. <coughs> and in fact, if you look at the article in Wikipedia on animal cognition that angers me to no end, I keep trying to fix it. Me and this guy, Stephen Lee, who's from over in the UK. Um, we, he started the article years ago, but then people started adding in, dolphins are the smartest animal. They just drive me nuts. <laughs> it does show, though, that in, in that article, if you take a look at it, there's a reference to what people think the rank ordering of species intelligence is. And intelligence is clearly tied to learning. People have been learning this forever. You still have people today that wonder which dog species, dog, uh, sorry, uh, breed is the smartest. Right? That dog whisperer guy who I have seen at conferences and I wanted to punch, but I thought it wouldn't be nice. I'd probably get in trouble and then it would be I'd be the bad guy because I hit the guy on TV. But he's published stuff about rank ordering different dog breeds. Uh, he apparently knows a lot about REM sleep. He's a world expert. Then he branched into this, and he has no idea what he's doing. Um, he knows about Brimsley. He can train a dog. But the complicated comparative question he's asking there, he doesn't know how to ask. Which he answered, apparently, by asking people what they thought was the smartest dog. <laughs> Excellent move. People have looked at a lot of things, like serial position effects. You know serial position curve, right? So you're going to remember 
the first thing in a list of words, the last thing in a list of words, and then the middle things you're not going to remember as well. You probably learned that in intro. Lauren may have done a little, you know, a little demo before it taught The idea of short-term and long-term memory. Um, and they've been doing this in rats and pigeons and monkeys, etc. For ages. Right? There's an implicit question here, and in fact, one might almost say an explicit question, uh, and the question that's being asked, really, when you start looking at those kind of phenomena is, is why is it doing that? Uh, the question is, can rats do what humans do? And for the longest time, when you think about the potentiality and all that, this makes a lot of sense, um, in a way. Because what you're doing is, you're asking this question. You may not be asking it explicitly, but you certainly are implicitly, because these are all phenomena that are, have originally been shown in humans, and then you say they show up in rats. Right? That's the question you're asking. This, in fact, almost seems like an interesting and sensible question. Right? The question you have to ask yourself is, what's the basis for this? Right? What's the basis for asking this question? Well, I think it's clear then that people are at the top of an evolutionary ladder. And Ken Hodos didn't say that. They actually, when they talked about the problems of comparative psychology in a paper called Where is the I think it's called Where is the Comparison of Comparative Psychology? In 1969. Um really went after everybody in animal learning and said, look, you're doing it wrong. You don't understand what you're doing. You don't rank order things. Here's a question for you. Why can't I fly by flapping my, my arms? Birds can do it. It's the same kind of question. That's the same question you're asking us. So they really criticized psychology in general. Compared uh, psychology, and said, "Look, what you're doing is, is you're, you're putting humans at top some ladder, and then you're saying, is anything else close to us?" The question we would ask evolutionarily is, why would we ask if rats are like people? What's the common ancestor of rats and people? I don't, I don't know, but it's a mammal, and it's a long time ago. You don't even look at the relationships, the, the relatedness, the evolutionary relatedness of two species when you ask these questions. Why would you compare people and pigeons? Right? There's two separate classes. It's not just families or species. We're talking about two different classes, right? Mammalia and aves. We're two different things. Why can't people use chlorophyll to make sugar from the sun? Why don't ask that question? Which would be cool. They should, look at friends in biotech, they should work on that, make your own food. If it would work on top of your head. Yeah, make your head, make your hair green with the chlorophyll. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Brain sugar, right? That's right, there you are. And you need sugar? It's got to go in the sun a little bit. It's a second, I'm feeling a little hungry, you think my hat off. Oh, that's good sugar. <laughs> I got friends in the biotech industry, they should start working on that. 
That and miniature, and I've said this before many times, miniature, miniature uh, elephants. I want small elephants developed. About that big, the size of a small, medium-sized dog, but they're elephants. That's what I'm looking for. Elephants live a long time. They're uh, seem okay. They're loud, so like if someone breaks in, imagine if somebody breaks into your house and they hear an elephant trumpeting, they're out because it's coming at you with its tusks. So I think I think this is what these people should be going going at. Chlorophyll for your for your hair and ele- baby toy elephants, like toy poodles, but toy. They, they, you know, they wouldn't be really small. They'd be about size of a beagle, perhaps. I'm still waiting on Japanese mammoths. Yeah, oh, I, I can't wait for that. <laughs> you hear about it every six months or so. It shows up in the sort of, in, in uh, you know, in the popular press. Well, they're still working on making mammoths. <laughs> in Japan. Yeah. And you know what's going to happen, you know, you know what happens in Japan with monsters. <laughs> A mammoth's going to show up. Sorry, this is what happens. You know this. You've seen the movies. <laughs> <laughs> You get Godzilla. I don't know what they call them. Uh, what would you, how would you say mammoth? You get mammoth. You know, like a big woolly mammoth. How about hairy elephant? How would you say that? Hairy what? Hairy elephant. How would you say that in Japanese? Okay, well, that's the thing the most. I just I need it. <laughs> so that I mean that's your concern. But yeah, no, I was trying. They got mammoth DNA. Put mammoth DNA in elephant egg. Make mammoth. Awesome. Because mammoths only died about 2,000 years ago, right? People in Siberia still find mammoths that are frozen. And they actually sometimes still need to eat the meat, and they use the ivory to uh, make carvings and stuff. It's pretty cool. So I think we need mammoths. It's more likely than my, than my toy elephant idea. And way more likely either of those are, of course, than my chlorophyll hair idea. <laughs> but I said it first, I've patented it for copyright. See, we know this is wrong, the evolutionary lab. But psychologists, and believe me, I'm talking up and even into my time as an undergraduate, people I know who I will not name because I think it would embarrass them, um, have said things like this. And we know that's silly. Just because something is more complicated cognitively, like say we are, we're probably the most cognitively complicated thing on the planet. I think we could probably, you know, cognitively complex it's us. Doesn't mean that we're the top of everything in cognition and learning. It doesn't have to. And in fact, it seems unlikely. Right? So we know this is an incorrect idea. And it's doing this again, and I don't know what that is. As we know, there's no top, there's no goal. Evolution doesn't have a goal, it just is. Evolution just is. I can see by looking at Jordan's face, he's thinking of some smart ass remark, which is good. That's why I'm glad he's in peace. Um, the better question is what has driven some species to be able to solve a certain type of problem? In other words, look at selection pressures. That's a much more interesting question, and it's also it's scientifically valid. Right? It's a scientifically valid question. It's not, I wonder if this can do what this can do. Because that whole program of research is really, it doesn't even make any predictions. Does it? 
The whole program of research of can, can rats do what people do, it's a program of demonstration. It's not ever talking about predictions. It's talking about demonstration. It's like it's almost like it's a it's a bunch of grade eight science fair projects. I mean, a lot of really, I shouldn't, that's that's disparaging way too much because a lot of really good data has come out of that approach. Um, we know a lot of things now, but the questions driving it were not the greatest questions. So, what selective pressures have led to the evolution of certain cognitive mechanisms? That is a way more interesting and valid question. And it took a very long time for this approach to become accepted and to be thought of as valid. A very, very long time. Otis and Campbell come up in 1969 with that paper. A few people start talking about this, a couple of them from the University of Toronto. Jerry Hogan is, is Jerry Hogan's an ethologist that has a PhD who was trained by B.F. Skinner, which is really cool. So he's a guy who studied, he worked with Skinner, yet he also did a postdoc in Holland where he studied, you know, dust bathing in Burmese jungle fowl. So he talked about something that was sort of naturalistic behavior. Uh, Sarah Shuttleworth, U of T. Uh, and then there were a bunch of other people that were also looking at this early on, in the, in the early 70s, looking at that kind of question. So asking what species is the smartest is, is, is a stupid question. Because who cares? It, it, partly it's who cares. It's interesting that we can do what we can do. There is no doubt about it. Human evolution is a fascinating topic. Human, the evolution of the human mind is, is perhaps an even more fascinating topic. But the question is, why are we like this evolution? What led, what selective pressures led us to be able to speak and to communicate using syntactic, symbolic language? Not, I wonder if apes can learn language. I've never understood why this is an interesting question to me. I mean, I think it's cool. It's neat that maybe you, maybe you can show uh, a chimp how to use American Sign Language. I think it's cool. My question is, why is that an interesting question? Besides that, it's cool factor. And those of you that are in the thesis class know about this, and if you aren't, you will one day if you're in the thesis class, you will know one of the questions that Lori says whenever anybody mentions their thesis idea is, who cares? And the question, she's asking that because she's saying, why theoretically this is an interesting question? Yeah, it'd be really neat if, but that's not really, that's not how you do science. You don't say, I wonder if this will happen. Right? So demonstrations can be interesting to get good data from them, but you're not going to make any predictions about what's going on. So why not ask what selective pressures have led to differences in cognition? And also, which ones have led to similarities in learning and cognition? Right? 
Okay, the question so far. It's making sense. And it's, it's just going to keep doing. I don't know what has happened with this sludge. It's going to work now. Okay. So we want to compare different species on a tax bill. I mean, on a learning ability. Uh, so how are we going to make these comparisons? Well, we compare the two species on some task. And the question you then have to ask yourself is, if we find a difference, how do we know that difference is, say, due to motivation? So let's say it's a task of, uh, what's a classic? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be spatial uh, matching to sample. So we've got, we've got a, an animal, okay, so some sort of bird. There's your bird. So I have an eye. And it's got a task where it sees a computer screen and something lights up. The bird goes and pecks this computer screen, touch screen, it goes off. And then after, I don't know, let's say five seconds, it gets a choice between this and this. And it pecks this one, the one on the left, which was up before, it gets food. If it pecks the other one, it gets no food. It's a spatial task. This is a, a case where it has to remember where something was. Okay? And you move this around and it all counterbalanced nicely. Yes, we've all taken something like 21, 27 in our lives. Okay. Make sense? Simple task. Now, let's say we find that species A is better at this than species B. Better could be a higher percentage, correct? It could be we move the retention interval, make it longer, so species A can get up to 10 seconds, and species B stops around 7, gets around a chance, whatever. And let's say we're using as reinforcement here, we're going to use mealworms. A lot of birds eat mealworms. Right? Great. So we use these little worms. They get a piece of work, they get it right. Species A better than species B, but what if species A likes mealworms better than species B? Okay. It's like, if you two guys were competing in something, and I don't know, let's pretend that Jenna uh, likes Camp Chocula way more. So you work harder. Maybe you're not even smarter. Maybe you are, I'm not saying if you do better because it's like, oh yeah, I can't chocolate. My parents would never buy a chocolate when I was a kid. And now I get camp chocolate. I mentioned camp chocolate because I've used it with rats before. Because rats love chocolate. Rats love sugar. And there's no better place to find the two than a child's breakfast cereal. <laughs> so. so how do we know? We find these two species, we don't know that the difference might just be due to motivation. Right? So that is a serious issue. There's nothing saying that that's wrong. Bitterman talked about this um, uh, back in the 60s. And Bitterman said that we have to take this into account. One of the things we do is use varying levels of the reinforcement. So one could guess that if it's a small enough amount, that Jen is not really, that the big motivational difference is what matter. Okay? 
at a large enough amount shows up, so maybe you would see that. And through using such, such approaches uh, with these varying motivational levels, uh, Behrman basically came up with what he said were different kinds of uh, typical learning. He said there was uh, rat-like learning, and pigeon-like learning, and fish-like learning, and I think it was turtle. They didn't use turtles. So amphibian-like learning. They're amphibians, turtles, aren't they? Reptiles, I'm not sure. Interestingly, the ones that were the, quote, smartest, the ones that could learn the most, were the mammals, the rat-like. And these are clearly right-ordered in Bitterman's paper. Now, this is in fact what led Hodes and Campbell to write that paper. Um, Bitterman said he didn't mean that, and I guess I can take him at his word. Um, and though you read that paper, it certainly seems that that's what he meant. I always had that impression when I read that. I was like, oh, let's see, he's right ordering species. Now, you would fail, jump ahead 20 issues. So, in the mid 80s. Now, the thing is here, at this point, people have started to talk about comparing species based on doing comparative psychology based on things like evolutionary history, relatedness, etc. And people have been getting somewhat successful at this. And McPhail uh, basically said that he wrote this paper uh, a couple of them in the early to mid-80s and he said, you know, in science we start with an hypothesis and everybody says yes. And the null hypothesis, as you all know, is that there is no effect. Right? There's no effect. And then you have to reject the null hypothesis by giving it data. By getting data that, you know, go against the prediction of the null. The null hypothesis, then, in this case, is that there is no difference between two species in learning ability. Now, the thing is, you have to keep the idea of motivation in mind as well. So, and this is a real problem, as, as I talked about before. So, when you do find something, it might be motivation. The only thing, in fact, that McPhail said he was certain of was that humans had language. That was the big, the big comparative thing that he figured the only thing we could safely say and not get down to motivational differences was that humans have language. Okay? That's the fail. Now, Al Campbell, and there's a picture of Al holding a parchment cracker. Al's great. He always does wear suspenders. Always. I've never seen him without suspenders. He's not always holding a parchment cracker. That would be weird. <laughs> he chews on cigars. He doesn't smoke them. But he chews on them. I think he, he used to smoke and he had a heart attack or something or some health thing. So he stopped smoking. He just chews on them. So he eats, basically eats cigars. I don't, think, I don't think he actually ingests them, but he certainly is. 
strikes uh, like this. Many of you have heard my alchemical impression. This is actually uh, pretty good. So, Al wrote a paper in 1987 um, called A Synthetic Approach to the Evolution of Animal Intelligence, I think it was called. It is the paper, probably for me, the most influential thing I've ever read in my career. Uh, when I arrived in Sarah Shuttleworth's lab, the first thing she said to me was, read this. I said, okay. Whatever you say, ma'am. He basically said, look, McPhail has set up an hypothesis you can't reject. Because every time I find, oh, no hypothesis. I find no difference, fine, there's no difference. When I find a difference, oh, it's motivation. So we can't reject it. So what you've done is you've now set up an hypothesis you can't reject. What you've done is completely illogical. Well, that's not good. So then, you know, the question you could ask is how would you fix this? Um, and what Al says is you test many species in many different paradigms. So instead of testing two species in one thing, like our spatial matching the sample here, you test them in many, many paradigms. If we find the same pattern of differences in many different tests, it's unlikely that motivation will be the culprit, the reason that this happened. Basically, what he says here is the idea of error cancels. Right? Because sometimes there's going to be a difference one way because of motivation, sometimes another way. It's exceedingly unlikely that it would always cause something to go in the same direction. Right? So sort of, it's, a, it's a statistical argument, but it makes a lot of sense. And he said, look at life history, biology, neuroscience, and psychology. Don't just look at, can they do this task? And conversely, don't do what the ethologists would do and just say, everything's different. That's not an interesting question. And what you have is an artificial setup. So what you're doing here is you're looking at what sort of differences should have evolved. So if you've got two species, and we're testing them on this, which is this spatial, it's a spatial experiment. We would expect, let's think of something that's very spatially loaded, um, and let's go with long-term, let's go with navigation, maybe navigation. So maybe we have a species that Navigates, you know, through uh, in a large home range, right? Really big home range. So instead of just having, maybe we would look at male-female differences. So we have a bird species that's polygamous, one male to many females. And we might make a guess here that if this is the case, they have to keep track of where a whole bunch of nests are, because it's not like that big love show where they all share a nest. Right? What they have is a bunch of other nests, and they take care of the, of the young and, and the females and all these different nests. So if they have nests scattered about a great big range, they have to remember where all those nests are. Right? If they 
have to remember where a whole bunch of nests are. They're doing a lot of navigation. And their fitness is going to depend on getting back to those nests and getting the food for the young, isn't it? Okay. And then we've got species of many, many birds are monogamous. I mean, truly monogamous. Not like monogamous like people where we're sort of actually polygamous and just say we're monogamous. There's more variance in female and male sex partners than females and humans, and that's cross-cultural, and that's even our culture. Once people are monogamous, males aren't. Okay. On average. Whereas birds, they pair bond for life. A lot of monogamous birds. So we would expect that a monogamous bird species, because they like to remember where one nest is, wouldn't be as good at remembering where stuff is as a polygamous bird species, right? Would we expect, so any spatial task, and this is a spatial task. We would expect the polygamous to be better than the monogamous. And then we go to another task that's a spatial task. We could have them. So this is on a small scale. This is on a screen, perhaps even that size. And then we could use a whole big room like this, a big aviary, and have feeders in different parts of the room. And they have to remember which feeders have peanuts in them. Now why do we do the same kind of tasks that use color? Because we would not expect there to be any difference between the two species in their memory for the color stuff, as long as they have color vision. Right? So, we could do this with red and green, instead of using spatial location. We could use these feeders around a room and say, you know, the yellow, blue, and red ones always have, feeder, uh, have food in them, and the ones that are different colors don't. And we expect a difference in remembering color and learning about color between these two species. No. What we would expect is sometimes the polygonous species will be better and sometimes the monogamous species will be better but we couldn't predict it. So on individual tasks, sure, sometimes one's going to be better than the other because of things like motivation, because of other behavioral variables, whatever. But in that, on average, over and over, a bunch of different tasks, we would expect no difference in remembering color. But we expect a difference in timing behavior. Uh, like le learning about the passage of time. Yeah, I don't have to do it. What we would expect is a spatial difference and nothing else. So when we look at this, the life history, which is just basically talking about how they... what their life is like in the natural environment. So polygamous or... and, and mating system's a huge thing. We can look at their neuro, the neuroscience angle. We would expect a difference between these two species <coughs> and others, you know, <coughs> more than two, in hippocampal volume. Hippocampus is important for remembering where spatial locations are. It's especially important in non-humans for remembering spatial locations. We would expect a bigger hippocampus than in, you know, relative to brain size, in the polygonous birds, than in the monogamous birds. Obviously. Right? So we can do all this stuff, and we're doing it, we're making a prediction, we're basing this simply on looking at the life history, looking at the evolutionary history of this animal. Yeah, Jordan. Uh, with this new paradigm and adjusting 
all kinds of things with yeah. different situations? Does it take longer to write, like, to publish things? Like, because no, not really, because each individual test would be interesting. Right? So what you would do in this case is you would probably, if, if you were ready this up, um, you might do one compare, experiment one might be the spatial comparison and then matching the sample and the, with the computer screen thing, and experiment two would be the color one. Or you could do something like experiment one, so it does that, and then experiment three can be compared, can be playing the two off against each other. So it's like this could be in this position and red. And then we go red and green, and then we can do a screw them around, and then flip them around and go put the red here and the green here and see which one they go to. Do they follow the color or follow the space? So that can be a second experiment or something like that, or third. And most papers have two or three experiments. So it wouldn't take any longer. But you would have that as your theoretical basis when you write the paper. Yeah. That's a good practical question. So what you're doing is the novel idea of making predictions. It's a crazy notion. So you're actually saying, what do I expect to happen? Other questions so far? Does this make sense? So, this kind of approach has been used in a few different times. I've talked about it a lot, but for the story, as you know, um, this started with a mathematical model. Food story can only evolve, remember the Anderson Preps thing I talked about the other day, food story can only evolve if you're recovering your own seeds. Right? And then, if, so if that's the case, how are you recovering the seeds? So the first experiments were field experiments done at the zoology department at Oxford. And this is, you know, Sherry Avery and Stevens, 81, when Dave Sherry was our postdoc out there. And basically what they did is they had, they made out in White and Wood, which is such a British name for a, for a forest. It's White and Wood, yes, of course. Uh, and they set up, they put up pine nuts, I don't know, pine seeds, so pine nuts basically, which are expensive, you know, seeds. I used to be eating them, I love pine nuts. We used to use uh, peanuts a lot in the lab, and I'd eat them, it was horrible. I'd be feeding the birds peanuts, I'd be eating them. <laughs> Sir, we need to eat more peanuts. I bought 10 pounds, Dave. Well, they're mostly gone. Um, so they took these seeds, these pine nuts, and they would, they were, they would, uh, they were, they were uh, laced with some radioactive element. Nothing really to, nothing would hurt the animals, just enough that you could trace it. You could find the seeds out that were stored in the wild. It wasn't like they were you know, laced with plutonium or like technesium or something like that. It was something, the same kind of thing you would use, uh, the same level of radiation if you uh, did a PET scan or something and you had to drink the radioactive glucose. So it was nothing too nasty. The reason this was done was because the birds would take the seeds and they would store them. Okay. Then, once the birds stored the seeds, the researchers sharing the seeds, they go out with a diet counter out in the light of wood and find seeds. Before the birds recover them, and then they move some of them. 
They move some 10 centimeters, they move some other ones 30 centimeters, they leave other ones that just leave them alone. If you are recovering your own seeds, like the mathematical model suggests, we should find that the ones that they have moved wouldn't have gone. They wouldn't be taken away because the bird flies back, takes a look, can't find it. Well, I guess it's gone. I guess it's squirreling. Right? And I think they predicted that if the ones they moved 10 centimeters would be more likely to be gone than the ones that moved 30. They figured 30 is enough that the bird's not going to notice it. The 10 is close enough by. But in fact, the 10 and the 30 were equally uh, left alone. But the ones that were not moved at all were basically all gone because the birds came back and got them. This shows the birds are recovering their own seeds. Because if they were if they weren't recovering their own seeds, they should all disappear at the same rate, shouldn't they? Okay. So now we know that Anderson and Krebs are right, they're recovering their own seeds. So then Sarah Shuttleworth goes and does a, uh, a sabbatical at Oxford, and she gets some marsh tits, and she has them store food in uh, an aviary. A very small aviary. Jeez. Uh, probably a quarter of the size of this room, very small, maybe a third of the size of this room, very small aviary. The bird is let in, it's allowed to store these little pine seeds, and in trees, and I put trees in quotes because they were basically four by fours with holes built in them. And now, what Sarah did, well, the same kind of thing. She removes half of them and leaves the other half. What does the marsh tip do? Well, it flies back in, and the interesting thing is it visits both the places where there aren't any seeds and the places where there are seeds. So it knows, it remembers where it put the seeds. And it's also been not doing it by smell, isn't it? Isn't it? Right? Because they can move Sarah's going and move the seeds. That paper, it's a great, great paper. Um, Shuttle with the Krebs 82. Uh, Sarah told me that it was the only one she ever uh, got back from, a, from the editor of a journal that just said accepted. They didn't have to change anything. And that doesn't happen. It just doesn't like, you, somebody else finds a comma at least. I've once, once in all my career of reviewing articles for journals, I've once said this is fine. But I said this is fine the way it is, but here's a couple of suggestions about wording. There's always something wrong, but this one was just like, yeah, it's fine. So that's pretty cool. And then, the people like Al Camel, who are studying food storing in Corvids, those are crows and nutcrackers and stuff like that, they've got like the world champion food store, which is the Clark's Nutcracker, which stores 30,000 seeds in the spring, or uh, fall, recovers 25,000 or so in the spring. Six months later, pretty impressive. They find, for example, in tasks like this, exactly like this, the matching the spatial matching the sample, um, that the Clark's Nutcracker can get up to a 90-second retention interval, which is insane. That's really, really no other species, no other species has ever got that far. Uh, they look at other things like scrub jays that store a little less, they're around 15 seconds. And then they just 
That's an interesting control. Throw in pigeons because it's like, here's the one everybody studies. They get it to five seconds. Pretty nifty. So Clark's not crackers the champions. The people that were studying food storing in parrots, that's the chickadees and titmice, um, couldn't find things. Sometimes they found stuff that was different. Sometimes they didn't. Right? It was like, oh, there is no, nothing special about the chickens. So what happened is people started looking, instead of looking at how much they remembered, they looked at how they remembered. The hypothesis being the way, what they were paying attention to, is a little more subtle than it's more subtle than the coordinates, which is just, oh, they remember more. This is, they remember differently. They pay more attention to spatial information. Right? So that's something like this, like I, would, like I was telling you, Jordan. For example, let's make this in this spatial position and red. Okay? And then normally this is red and this is green. They can, how can you solve this? You can solve it through spatial location or through the color. Both work. And we can compare a soaring and a non-soaring bird species. No problem. And we'll find, by the way, likely that both are just as good as the other. They both get up around with a five-second retention variable, perhaps around 90% correct. Very quickly, too. The way we find out what they're paying attention to is we flip these around. So if originally, so this would be a normal test day, let's say we'll make that one red, and then this one's red, and this one's green. On a test, we go red here, but then we go green here and red here. Now, if they go to the color first, they're paying more attention to color. If they go to <coughs> the spatial location first, they're paying more attention to the spatial location. We could also do something neat where we could just take the color out and make these both white. So there's another test we could do. So red in that position, but then the other test we could do is just white and white. Now you can only solve that through space. So if you remember color at all, you're screwed if you're just doing color. Finally, we can have the red there, but then instead of having the same, in the same spatial location, we could do red and green in some other spatial location. So see if they can do it just with color. And it turns out that food storing chickadees, for example, are better, oh, sorry, will use space at the expense of color. In fact, they don't remember the color. You can train them explicitly to remember color. You can do that. But if they're ever given the choice, they ignore color. And this makes a great deal of sense, right? They ignore color because... Look at the evolutionary pressures. When do they store? They store in the winter. The fall of the winter. Colors move around. The colors in the winter are pretty much constant. They're white. Right? Maybe a little brown, a little gray. And in the fall, there's all kinds of colors. All the fall colors. But leaves blow away. But you know what stays pretty stable? That tree's right there. Right? Makes sense they ignore color. They can remember color. They just prefer to use space. Dark-eyed juncos, which are non-storing birds, little songbirds, live in the same part of the world. Use space or color equally. They do just as well as the chickadees normally. 
But when the clever experimenters start screwing with them, they change everything. They, they, that's when you see the difference. So the difference is what they're remembering, sorry, how they're remembering, not how much. And this was done also in an aviary type experiment and then this experiment uh, with uh, Peter Kutcher. Uh, that one there, the one in the, in the, in the uh, computer, is brought back in Shuttleworth. Uh, is that any fun? That's experiments, I think it's five, six, and seven on PhD thesis. And the one in the aviary is experiments one, two, three, and four of the PhD thesis, and that's brought back in 94. So, I think in the um, So the point of this, then, is that we expected a difference, and in this case, we expected a difference in how they remembered. Not how much, but how. This has been uh, replicated uh, a zillion times, by the way, in all kinds of different species. It's not quite as simple as Broadbeck thought. Uh, I mean, it's cool. It was my idea, so I'm pretty happy with that. Um, so we can call it the Broadbeck effect, which I thought was really cool. Sarah wouldn't let me put that in the paper. Even so, somebody else said, you can't do that. It's like ego. You can't. <laughs> yeah, but he said... Hey, did, did you ever have a test and you try giving them two of the answer? The double pack? How do you mean? Like giving them two reds? Yeah. They would just pack both? No, they would pack. Oh, the, the chickadees would go to space, uh, and then sell the jungles. Would they go for it twice, or did they just. Go no, just once. But then if you do it with just, just with white, uh, the chickadees are fine. If you move the colors, so if, let's say. It's red here, you need the red green choice here. The chickens are screwed, they're at 50%. They're ready to chance. Yeah. You can train to do that. A uh, bunch of stuff that I did after I finished one of these experiments that was unpublished, I actually compared training chickadees and training juncos to do this. Uh, juncos could learn it in about 40 trials, which is nothing. I mean, bang, bang, they're done. My chickadees, it took, um, I one that never learned it. One that took 600 trials, one that took 1,500 trials. They just couldn't, it was like, no, but I remember where stuff is. I don't want it. They can, but it takes a long time. I think my buddy Rob eventually was able to train them, but it took a long time, and it was at that point I had left to go to a postdoc. We never wrote it up. I think that's what, and I think, yeah, maybe Rob did. I think Rob might have later on, Rob Hampton. Um, but they weren't using my gear, let's say, or my paradigm or anything like that, so I'm not going to the authors, which makes sense. I shouldn't be on that there. I'm not saying that. Um, but yeah, I think you can train the chickadees to do this, but it's hard. It'd be like trying to get you to ignore human language and instead go on the basis of gestures. Assuming you don't speak, natively speak American Sign Language, right? So, I mean, it's a hard thing for a human to, to ignore language. Or it's like the Snoop effect, right? You know, when I give you a list of uh, uh, colors written out, like blue and red and green and yellow, and have you read them, except the word blue is written in red, you have real trouble going blue, red. You get screwed up. Everybody does. And it slows you down. It's sort of like what's happening there. You can't help but process that that color is blue, even though, or is red, even though the word that's written is blue, and you're supposed to read the word. Right? You can do it, but you've got to slow way the hell down. 
So we could train the chickens to do it, but it's hard. Yeah. And that's what other people have found too, comparing chickadees and other sort of storing and nuzzling birds. Um, I literally just reviewed a paper. When did I get that done? Thursday? Uh, for the Journal of Animal Cognition, where they were testing all kinds of different species on these kind of tasks. And it's not quite as general as I figured, as I thought it was. Um, and a lot of people thought it was. Like, it looks like these differences do show up, but they're a little more subtle. It's not just stores and non-stores, and that's not the only way you can make the prediction, etc. It's also the first time I've reviewed an article from a Facebook friend. It's very strange. Yeah, so I sent him a message afterwards. Him and her. So I just reviewed your paper. It was pretty good. I said, publish it. Don't blame me. It doesn't get accepted. So I mean, this stuff here, this is a good story, because we also know that chickadees, for example, and your carts, nutcrackers, etc., have a bigger hippocampus than you would expect based on their brains than non-storm birds. We know that if you lesion hippocampus in chickadees, they can't find where they put stored seeds, but they can still learn about color. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful story, and it's basically finished. I know people are still working on it and all that stuff, but like basically the story's been told in it, and it's perfect, and it's exactly what everybody predicted. And this is what made it, this is what made us so excited about this. Is that like, you know, it was very cool to be involved in this uh, when I was in grad school because, you know, it's like, hey, I'm on the cutting edge. That was cool. I was very lucky, very, very lucky to work with someone. Questions about the food store. So it's pretty clear what we're talking Cowbirds are an interesting species because brown-headed cowbirds, for example, um, they're nest parasites. They don't take care of their young. Don't. They lay their eggs in someone else's nest. And they aren't looking. That's what they do. All kinds of interesting adaptations. Cowbirds have to have song, because if you know a bird song, males sing to attract females. That's one of the that's the function of it. Other communication things too, but that's basically what goes on. With most songbirds, they have to learn their song, their species-specific song. Cowbirds don't. Built in, of course, because they're raised by somebody else. If you're going to lay eggs in someone else's nest, you've got to know the nest somewhere. You can't be flying around with an egg about to come out of it. Come out of it. Well, I hope I find the nest soon! <laughs> well, what happens is, in fact, um, you have to know when <coughs> the mother is away. You have to know if she's only laid her eggs. You have to know both those things. And you have to know where her nest is. It sounds to me like a spatially loaded problem. What do males have to know? Absolutely nothing. You have to have a sing and mix her. So here, this is a within-species prediction we make, and we would predict that females would be better at spatial tasks than males in cowbirds. We would also predict it would be based on how many different species they parasitize. Because there are cowbirds that specialize in only one species. And then there are cowbirds that 
are pretty much generalists. They, they will lay their eggs in 255 different kinds of nests. You would expect then that the more generalist you are, the bigger or the better you'd be at, at, at spatial tasks because you have to remember more nests. We would expect a hippocampal difference here. We would also expect that evolutionarily, the oldest species is the one that's the specialist. And then the more recent one, the most recent one is the much more general one. And in fact, all of those things are true. So we find this female-male difference here in cowbirds. Originally done with brown-headed cowbirds. Now it's been gone to all kinds of other cowbirds. So we find a sex difference. And it's interesting because it's a female greater than male in a spatial task. That shows the importance of this because typically it goes exactly the other way. Because testosterone tends to make brains that are good at spatial tasks. But we would ex we get exactly the opposite of that in cowbirds because, well, their lives depend on this. This is their mating strategy. Or their, their, well, I guess parenting, if you want to call it that strategy. And we get exactly that. On the other hand, we get, with voles, we get exactly the opposite. You know what voles are? They're like little tiny um, rodents. You know, they're like 40 or 50 grams. Brian, uh, I know, well, Prof. Mine, when I was an undergrad at Western, I worked with bulls a little bit, and he said, uh, you had to catch them wild, of course. You pick them up wearing a glove, like a butcher's glove that's made out of chain mail, because if you didn't, they'd just bite your fingers off. They're really vicious little bastards. So just, you know, working with wild animals is a little more fun than rats. Rats are good, too. So with these animals, we have two kinds of voles, uh, the meadow vole and the pine vole. And if I'm not mistaken, the meadow vole is the polygonous one. And the pine vole is the monogamous one. And the, the, the meadow vole has, you know, three or four or five mates, so all kinds of nests. We would expect then that they would be, the meadow voles, we would see a male-female difference. The females don't have to remember where all the other nests are. They have to remember where their own nest is. The males, on the other hand, have to remember where all their families are. Right? So unlike the cowbirds, we find the male-female difference going the other way, where the males are better than females in spatial tasks. If they're polygamous, if they're monogamous, there is no sex difference. So if they're monogamous, there is actually no sex difference. And we find the same thing. Campbell differences and everything. It's a very cool story. Questions about that? See, the original idea about general process learning assumes that all species are the same. Right? That equal potentiality. Everything can learn anything. And we know that then, from an evolutionary perspective, this is ridiculous. This is really a silly idea. We don't expect that every species to be the same in any other kind of thing. Yeah, do we expect similarities? Hell yeah. Vertebrates have hearts. 
structure and bones and brains and, you know, circulatory systems, all these kind of things, pulmonary systems. Yeah, we expect those things. Everything needs oxygen. ATP is ATP. These are all things we expect. We also expect a lot of differences. So why shouldn't we expect those in cognitive abilities, in learning? So what we would expect evolutionarily is modularity. Um, modularity is just the idea that we have basically we being any animal. Let's call them organs. Mental organs. Okay? So we have one that does one kind of learning, one that does another kind of learning. So we would probably have a module for space, knowing where stuff is. Because if we move around in space, any animal, and almost every animal does move a little bit, we have to remember where we've been and plan where we're going. Right? So we should have a module for space. We should have one for time. Because it's a, one of the qualities of our universe is time passes. So we have to have, we have to know when stuff happens. Right? And we can look at learning phenomena between species and look at space and time. And while there may be differences in how much and how well, etc., space is used, space almost always follows the same set of rules, remembering where stuff is. Almost always follows the same set of rules. Same thing with timing. The way that animals time, which is um, way more complicated than you want to know about. I did an animal, I did a special topics course in animal cognition a few years ago, and I think I spent three classes on timing. And almost a revolution almost ensued. Uh, animal timing is hard. Um, but everybody does it the same way. I would think number is something that we would have all have a, 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 a module for. So in terms of recognizing number of... Could be number of prayers, could be number of young, could be... But I mean, number is an important quantity in our universe, right? So if you're making a foraging decision, should I stay here and keep eating or not? How much food's here? Is it more than I remember at somewhere else? That seems like number is a pretty good one. And the neat thing about number is you should be able to, we think, think a lot of species, not just us, should be able to do things like simple addition. Not just, you know, this is greater than this, but also this and this is more than that and that. And in fact, there's a very neat experiment that showed this. What happened is... Um, these are squirrel monkeys, and they were given a choice. This is an experiment by uh, Althoff, Iden, and Roberts. And I think it's 97. It's a very good experiment. And what happened in this experiment was these squirrel monkeys are given cards um, that cover up. There's like a little thing about that size, and there's two little wells, pieces of, this, so it's a piece of wood, and they've got pieces of peanut in it. And then over top of this, 
are put two cards. There's a card put on top of that, a card put on top of that. Now the monkeys can't see how much food's underneath each one, but it's like they're giving that three and say seven. And underneath here, there's seven pieces of peanut, and underneath here, there's three. And it's, you know, pretty straightforward. Can they learn that seven means seven and three means three? That's cool. We would expect they could. How do you test this? Well, you pair them up like this, but you, you hold certain pairs back. So you never test them on three and five together. You never test them on seven and two. Like the whole bunch of ones that can't have just memorized every single possible pair. And in fact, when that was done, they were actually, both monkeys were at 90% correct on the pairs they'd never seen before. That's already pretty cool. Now, they use threes and sevens and... That's no, one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it is. Um, it's the Stone Age, right? Yeah, yeah. the end yeah. <laughs> um, So, they could use triangles and squares. It doesn't matter. Just that it's easier probably to use threes and sevens and fours and sixes. Then, what they thought they'd do is could they teach them to add? So give them the choice between... So two cards, again, one that said like, uh, let's go with three, and two. So six and one on the left, three and two on the right. Why did I choose these two? Well, this one's bigger than this one, but this one's bigger than this one. It was all counterbalanced like that. And they thought, and there was a red bar they used to. Let's just teach them that red bar means add. Uh, the monkeys were perfect on day one. They were perfect right away. They get to train it all. They spontaneously added. And you would not believe what Anik Oldhoff, Karen Iden, and Bill Roberts went through after this because they had to run this experiment so many different times in so many different ways, double and triple blind kind of procedures where they hired undergraduates that didn't know what the experiment was about, that were literally wearing blindfolds when they were preparing things. It was unreal. It's an amazing experiment because, oh, by the way, they tried to teach them to subtract using a blue bar. The squirrel monkeys could have no clue what to do. They spontaneously just added. This makes a lot of sense, though. Because, like I was saying, if you're comparing to foraging locations or something, she'll do some addition. Do you have a question about that experiment? How is this... I understand that it's really cool, but yeah. how is it more cool to you than the sign language? Because it seems almost the same. Um, it's cool because it makes sense that they should show number. Oh. Right. Any and especially these guys... Um, they forage, where squirrel monkeys forage up in the um, forest canopy, um, it's pretty constant amount of food, right? But it's kind of patchy, so it's tree, 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 and they're getting numbers and amounts of fruit. So the guess you could make is they should be pretty, they should be okay at this. Um, this has been tried in other species and not been quite as successful. Uh, but yeah, you would expect, it's a good question, but you would expect it because they have to make foraging decisions and, and number is something you'd expect to happen in most, in almost anything. 
Yeah. That's a very good question. Dave? Yes. Um, like, so you say, like, number is, like, a module that lets us use these I would, yeah, I would expect it. So, like, why do, like, um, like, if you have birds and you have, like, a cowbird or whatever, mm-hmm. and it puts, like, an egg into someone else's nest, why do the birds not know, like, hey, there's another like, egg here? Because there, the chance, well, there's a couple possibilities here. Um, the first one is that they don't think we pay attention to this. Because typically you would expect that you would have the same number of eggs as you lay. The second and more interesting one, um, I've heard this said, is that uh, other species that are parasitized by cowbirds have learned, sort of through evolutionary time, uh, don't mess with the cowbird eggs. Because if you do, the cowbird comes back and kills your young. So it's like it's, it's like a ransom. It's like it's like a threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've heard that. I don't know that it's true, but it's kind of a cool story. <laughs> so, um, but you would expect that you're not always going to get parasitized. In fact, it's probably very unlikely. So why pay attention to it? Right. Whereas when you're out foraging, it would make a great deal of sense to pay attention to it. And this is basically, in essence, you're getting food basically a foraging area. Mm-hmm. Right. There's another good question. Ooh. Is that the last one? Mm-hmm. I think it is. Where will we get new modules? Um, when the prison modules won't solve the problems. Dave Sherry, Dan Schachter, you probably heard Dan Schachter, a cognitive psychologist, his memory, uh, and then Dan, Dave Sherry, I talked with him today. Two different, two disparate approaches. One study of human cognition, one study of animal cognition and neuroscience, but they wrote this cool paper. And they said, when should we get new Modules showing up, which they evolve. Well, when the present ones won't solve the evolutionary problems they're faced with. So they talk in that paper about, for example, birdsong. They said, look, when birds first had to learn songs, they already had classical and opera conditioning available to them. But you can't learn birdsong. Birdsong has to be remembered for the rest of your life. You can't forget it. You can't be flying around going, that's a really pretty song. It's not, I don't know if it's my species or not, but I better go mate with it. That's not going to work. Oh, how do I do a mating song again? Oh, I think it's like, no, then you'll go mate. So, you have to remember that for the rest of your life. That's going to be a lot more effective than remembering it for a short term, like regular classical rock condition. So that's what Dave and Dan said, is that they would expect new memory systems, or we might say modules, to evolve when a new problem faces a species and it can't solve that problem with the cognitive architecture it has now. A lot of you have key content today because they're from there too, but you guys have really cool things going on. All right, thanks, guys.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.